Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, from the Santa Monica Studios, with a great show of tennis talk today as we gear up for the French Open. First up, I'm talking to Barstool Hubs. It's Eric Hubs, who's been the tennis mainstay at Barstool for a very long time. He's got a lot to discuss about his love for tennis, how he fights the good fight, keeping it alive, and writing and blogging about it, tweeting about it at all hours of the day his fandom of Roger Federer growing up, how he's gotten to know some Americans like Tommy Paul, and what his outlook is for the Americans and for Rafael Nadal, Carlos Alcaraz, Novak Djokovic, and the rest of the field as we gear up for the French Open. And then joining me after that is esteemed tennis journalist Chris Cleary. He was on the podcast last year and wrote the definitive Roger Federer book in 2021 titled The Master. He's going to be on the ground in Paris, traveling there next week. We recapped the Madrid Open, Sabalenka over Iga Swiatek in an epic match. Alcaraz defends his title. What to expect in Rome with the return of Novak Djokovic and some other players contending there as we gear up for the second major of the year. It's Barstool's Eric Hubs followed by Chris Clary on Tennis Channel Inside In, and it starts right now. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. We're within a couple weeks now of the French Open starting. A special guest on this week's show, last to talk to him. Uh, he is self-proclaimed the only guy who watches tennis and enjoys it in America from Barstool Sports, Eric Hubs, Barstool's Hubs himself. Thanks for joining the show, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, usually when I come on a podcast, I'm talking Yankees, baseball, all that. It's it's kind of refreshing to be asked to come on a tennis podcast. Very excited. Um, I think there's probably a few more people that like tennis in America besides me, but at Barstool for sure, I think it's basically just me. I was going to bring that up. We can we can get to it. I think the first time, I mean, I'd, I've seen your work on Twitter and you keep the game alive, which I appreciate, but it was... Yeah that rundown clip from Wimbledon 2019. We were all hurting for the people that were, you know, looking at Fed in that match and thinking this is his last chance. But that was kind of when you went mainstream. And, I mean, if there was ever a match to do that, it had everything, and it really did capture the non-tennis fans too. Oh, my God. That was – it's painful, like, to look back on every part. I'll go back and – just like hate watch it not, not that clip but also like the match itself but um yeah i i kind of forgot about it until it resurfaced uh like a week ago or whatever and uh yeah it's painful but yeah i i, I love tennis i've loved federer forever i thought he was just the coolest dude when he played just read just everything you think of when you think of tennis excellence yeah. so um yeah it's been my guy forever so was that the guy that first got you into the game uh there's not you know because there's not enough there's not a lot of info about you you're kind of mysterious on the internet so is that the first thing that got you into tennis was Rogers just descent. Yeah. I'd say growing up and having like us open finals on the TV and my dad, like throwing it on my dad, wasn't the biggest tennis guy, but if Federer, you know, was playing the finals, whatever. And, um, who was doing it back then? Was it Dick Ebersol, whatever on the call? I, I forget, but it, there was just something about that, that gravitated and Federer come out like all black and just obliterate people. And I was mm-hmm. like, hey, I mean, this guy's, yeah, absolutely yes. cool student you start to yeah. follow it more and more in college i really got into it 
um, especially in the gambling side of it. That's where I really started to learn mm-hmm. everyone's names, uh, mm-hmm. honestly, like just not being able to sleep in college and, you know, seeing what's, you know, maybe like the Asian circuits going on and that stuff mm-hmm. starting at like yeah. 11 PM or whatever and go until, you know, the break of dawn. So yeah, that's the, that's really how I got into like knowing everyone's names. Uh, and then from there growing up further, but fed and, and the U S opens, you know, in that like, you know, early two thousands is when I really started to heat up into it. Yeah. You had that OG Dick Enberg, jo- uh, Johnny Mac broadcast call. That's what I was Enberg. Yeah. yeah. Enberg. Yeah. And it was great because you'd see him lose in, in the French open to Rafa and then win in Wimbledon. So as you got back to back finals there yeah, and uh, you know, we can kind of talk about a little stuff about how you got into Barstool and everything, but I, I always felt like given your company and where you guys have gone and, how it's, you know, that you have to work kind of random hours. I kind of felt like tennis is, it works with that in a lot of ways. Like you're, you're having to do a lot of things at random hours, but tennis is played literally all over the globe. So it kind of fits hand in hand. That's the beauty of it. You know, like I'm a, I'm a baseball guy at heart, obviously, but I do love my tennis. And the thing I really love about tennis is that it's on during the day, like during the week, like it, it, especially around mm-hmm. this time, you know, yeah. with, with clay court and, and, and grass coming here, you know, um, hard court, you know, the American circuits typically like, you know, the big matches are at night, but um, I just love having stuff to like kind of distract me a little bit from work here and there. And uh, you know, sometimes I just don't, you know, want to take a little breather from work. I'll, I'll watch some tennis. It's always yeah. kind of on the background and yeah. And, and you know, the Aussie open, I was just talking to my girlfriend about this. She's a night nurse. So she has an insane schedule and like, Kind of how we hit it off was it was like the Aussie Open. And she's yeah. like, why are you up right now? And yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to watch, you know, the big matches or whatever in January. And um, yeah, that, that's just that is definitely part of it. That that really appeases to me. Um, maybe as I get a little bit older, you know, I won't be able to stay up so much for the <laughs> Aussie Open. You know, I, I'm starting to kind of feel that with like even like late night NBA basketball. I'm just like, right. man, this game's starting late. But I still have it in me to like try and watch as much as I can and and, you know, especially during the work day. Yeah, Don't tell were, my boss that. Yeah, there, I won't. There was a few times that there were matches in Australia in the last couple of years. Uh, Federer, Millman, if you remember that match. Where oh, yeah. Just, you know, right. And then Sitsipas coming back on Rafa. Those were two matches out on the West Coast where I'm like, I don't think anyone is awake and understanding what's exactly happening. There's like five yeah. people on there. So I'm, I'm one of yeah. them. I was there. I was there with you. Yeah. Like even like the yeah. Curios team match from yeah. a few years ago. They got, like I'm just up watching all that stuff. That Federer Millman, I think back to it. They were like, he should have lost that match 10 different times. It's just yeah. like eight, four, eight, four super tie break. He wins the last yeah. six. It was just, it was just, just nonsense. So when you got kind of immersed, you became the barstool, like Yankees guy and in, in accordance with a lot of the sports coverage in the New York teams, did you kind of look around and think like, maybe I'm the only tennis guy here? Is that a lane you just filled by accident? How did you become the de facto tennis guy? At your company? Yeah. I mean, at Barstool, there's a lot of freedom. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's certain people, like there's a Patriots guy, you know, at the time when I come on, there was a Red Sox guy, you know, certain things you don't touch. And then you do see some openings mm-hmm. and it was something I was passionate of. And you just kind of, kind of learn what to write about that really what attracts the listener. And in tennis, we do have our fair share of weird, random, viral stories. You know, I mean, we just saw it with Madrid, that whole disaster I was writing about yesterday. So that kind of stuff does interest people. Um, and Benoit Pair, tanky matches. Like, that stuff is <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. people find that funny. You know, they're not going to want to hear, you know, the results of this upcoming ATP Rome or whatever. Um, you know, but like, you try and find the stuff that is interesting. And, and, and in tennis, I do find that there is 
consistently some mm-hmm. really went random weird stuff there's a lot of weird brains involved in tennis and some weird rules that get broken a lot and some controversies so that's the stuff i find to attack and yeah there's really no one else that even knows that's going on at barcelona so yeah if that field's open i took it um and uh, you know all, all the power you know i want to spread the game as much as i can uh yeah. and because i really there's so many so many fans that i think if just like you know, if Daniel if Daniel Medvedev was an American, right. I think he would be unbelievably popular in this country. He's not; he's Russian. But if he like if that kind of personality and how good he is was American, it, the, the sport would be huge. You know, hopefully Taylor Fritz yeah. is getting you know trying to become that kind of guy. But I just feel like there are so many fun personalities in tennis that I wish Americans could gravitate more to. There's a lot of sports in, in America that people just love, and it's tough yeah. to add another one in mm-hmm. there. So that's kind of the problem. Medvedev is just ridiculously funny. Like people don't understand it. They think, oh my god, one of the actually and, yeah. funniest like athletes in the world. I think if you just listen to his interviews, they're so so funny. Did you grow up going to the U.S. Open, like having a slam and being able to? I mean, that's just so like I'm jealous and envious of it. Anyone that lived that close to a Grand Slam, those opportunities was that something that kind of got you uh, your juices going so believe it or not no um so growing up uh so like i said i didn't really like get too too much into it until college okay and i went to college in syracuse so i'm back i would be back up there around us open time so i wouldn't be able to make trip and then out of college i stayed home for a little bit uh before i moved in the city like a couple years after that and I still didn't have the time. And then eventually, okay, I was like, okay, I want to go. But now I need people to go with. <laughs> yeah. I don't really want to go by myself. Yeah. And then just like two, three years ago, I can't remember exactly, we went. And I it ended up being, I don't know if this was the first day. This was the first tournament I went to. It was at the U.S. Open. But it was Carlos coming back on Pass with the bathroom breaks and all that. Yeah. That was like my first, I think that was like two years ago. Okay. That was my first real tournament i'd been to and then from there i was like okay i need to come here and then i started to have some friendships with some players o- over the years and i even saw tommy down in delray a couple of years ago that was cool and yeah now i go every single year now i'll probably go to the u.s open three or four times a tournament and you know because it's just a subway ride at this point don't you feel like and i almost put tennis in, in a sports category like hockey and some other ones where just going there could win people over because i feel oh like once you're there it doesn't maybe translate as well on television as it does being in the moment. Yeah. The ability to, especially the U S open, the ability to just walk over from court to court and you know, the, it, yeah. you know, the, the honey deuces and everything, <laughs> and the food is delicious. And it's, I, I actually did it last year. I brought two of my coworkers, um, Nate and, and fights. And we went to, of course, I've gotten some really good luck. You're going to find out here, but yeah. we went, and saw Sinner Carlos, like that went till <laughs> you stay for, you stayed all night, huh? Oh yeah, yeah oh yeah. At that yeah. point, they were once they saw the first set, they were like, <laughs> "Okay, this isn't normal." Like no. th- this guy's, these two are ridiculous here, and they kind of didn't know. Now they've gotten a little bit more into it, but it was just fun yeah. seeing those guys experience yeah. it for the first time. They're like, "Wow, this is." And then obviously, when it gets really late, the U.S. Open, they let you go downstairs, mm-hmm. you know, because they want to clean the top. And we were like, for the fifth set like seventh row or whatever it was unbelievable and they at that point they were like they were texting me like days after like i still can't believe we saw that and then obviously he goes on to win the whole yeah. thing um it was it special it's a really fun thing to go to in person like i'll say like nfl i don't like going to in person i'd rather watch it on tv mm-hmm. you know baseball i i do enjoy going to baseball games nba probably could watch on tv as well tennis man is just really really fun in person it is. I remember the first tournament I went to was Indian Wells like 
I mean, probably seven, eight years ago, it was serving and it was Milos Raonic serving at 140. And I was just like, whoa, like what this is, you know, this, you hear about this, you see it on TV when Isner serves, just saw him a couple months ago, but those serves at that level in person, you can't even begin. To yeah. I, I got to see Nick. Um, yeah. I can't remember who he blew so early in the tournament. I want to say it was this past one. Um, he obliterated someone yeah. and it's just seeing the Nick serves are just stupid. It's just absolutely done. I've yet to see Isner. Um, but Nick is, I mean, right up there with some of the best serves you can have. I would almost, I, you know, not anymore, but Karlovich would have been fun to see. Yeah. I feel like in person, just like the angle of his mm-hmm. serves are just so ridiculous. I will say the one bad thing about going to tennis and they need to change this. And I think they've, they've talked about it, but the rule where you just can't, you got to wait outside for the two games to end yeah. you know, every two games. That can get brutal because these games go long. Sometimes you know, if the you first go to three, a five, yeah, the first three which, has to change. Like that's something yeah. that everyone's on board with. Because oh. if you don't, yeah, you don't get the one game when they're already changing sides. No, so. it's brutal sometimes. Uh, yeah, especially if it's like a long deuce game or whatever. Got to change that. But other than that, I've I've a blast. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. More with Barstool Hubs here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, I want us to kind of segue into the Americans, and you've mentioned kind of getting to know some of the players, but where we are right now in the generation of talent, it's been, you know, the 20-year dry spell of a major on the men's side, and all all that has been talked about. But, Hubs, do you think that the American game is thriving? Because you look at the numbers, there's a top 10 player, there's three in the top 20, eight in the top 40. Would you consider it thriving, or do we need to get more, I guess, Grand Slam success at the end of the day? got to get the one slam and then it really like a real impact is made but man over the last few years something something has changed and i'm almost thinking like there's going to be a documentary in like 10 years about someone behind the scenes who really just you know started the the you know the engine here to like get all these guys ramping up and it's just there's a wave it's awesome and you saw at the aussie like there's tommy making a run and it's just cool and taylor honestly i didn't know if I it to sustain because last year was a dream for him yeah. career year, I didn't know if twenty twenty three was kind of going to continue that. The way he's performed on clay is like yeah, and very surprising. Everyone talks about ceilings. Obviously, Ben Shelton looked great. Corda's yeah. got so much upside, but there is yeah. something to be said about the here and now that Fritz just gets results and something yeah. impressive to me that U.S. Open you were at last year. There's something with Fritz how he's able to keep it going after a loss. He just turns the page and bounces back and you know he loses to center and Monte Carlo he was upset I feel like he handles losses so well and just has that you know has that dog in him he has some really good resiliency um and like ability to I feel like recover from injuries kind of quickly too um I feel like sometimes I thought he was gonna be about way longer than he was and he manages mm-hmm. to come back 
Um, yeah, he, and his ability to just play now on every surface is is something else. He needs to perform well at this U.S. Open. He mm-hmm. needs a deep U.S. Open run. Um, and Corda, uh, just getting back from the injury, he has all the talent. I was there to see – I saw him and Tommy go at it. Um, I think it was on grandstand last year at the mm-hmm. U.S. Open. That was special. They had a little fun interaction at the net. <laughs> yep. uh, that was that was interesting. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think – I think Tiafo said it like, man, we just push each other. We're all kind of friends at this point. We're all kind of in it together. We all want U.S. tennis like back on the map here. And the moment we get that slam, and whether if it's from Francis, whether if it's from Taylor, Sebastian, maybe even Tommy, like it's going to be a yeah. huge moment. Like those guys are going to go all the shows. They'll be house. They'll yeah. be close to household names. And we just need that because, you know, as much as winning Indian Wells for Taylor did. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much it actually did for tennis in America. Like you need to win a slam. I think that yeah. would be, that would be ginormous. I agree. I, I would just add that beating Rafa, I know he wasn't a little compromised, but getting that win over a big guy does legitimize things. Yeah. Uh, the France, uh, it, it definitely yeah. does. Yeah. It definitely does. Um, you know, and Taylor was going through his own things too. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just, it wasn't yeah. just Rafa. So that <laughs> yeah. kind of almost leveled it out a little bit. Yeah. And it's so like, you see it. I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of tennis is when you see an opponent like a Rafa or a Novak fed struggling and you don't like, you almost <laughs> let up a little bit. You're, yeah. You don't, you lose that. Cause you, if you want to beat those guys, you have to one hope it's not their best day and you have to be on your best day. Yeah. And for those guys, when you see them struggling a little bit, you, you let up and then all of a sudden, you know, maybe their cramp lessons or whatever, or yeah. they roll it out during a, you know, a changeover and then boom, yeah. You, you just lost the yeah. match. It's so hard to yeah. still do what Taylor did in yeah. Indian Wells. And I don't think people appreciate that enough. We saw that with Alcaraz this year, right? In some of the matches that he was yeah. hampered in, he still got, you know, the ability to come up with ridiculous plays. Oh yeah. And just on that American tennis thing, that first, I guess, wave of players, there is something to be said about the 96, 97 generation. Cause you talk Tiafo, Fritz, Paul Opelka was in there. That's four world beaters. And you know as well as I do that that doesn't happen every birth year, every class. Like they've got four legit guys and somebody like Tiafo, who you saw at the U.S. Open. I mean, man, if yeah. he gets going, that's like generate. That is the wide reach that most tennis players unfortunately don't have. Hundred percent. I mean, he gets like Bradley Beal to come up from D.C. Yeah. to go see him, whatever. And Jimmy Butler is a huge yeah. fan. I don't know. People don't talk about that enough for how big of a tennis fan. I would love <laughs> to just have a twenty to thirty minute conversation about tennis with him with, with Jimmy Butler. He went to but, Argentina. Uh, he went to Argentina to watch Alcaraz yeah, play. <laughs> like it's it's if he has a little bit of time yeah. off, he goes to see yeah. tennis. I, yeah. I absolutely love that. Uh, I don't love that he's beating my Knicks right now, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the tennis part is cool. But yeah, I, I 100% agree. Tiafa winning would be special because he has just a th- – those guys are all likable. His personality, Tiafo's, is just a, to another level, I feel like, that you you pair a slam with him and you're talking about just an absolute superstar in this country. What was it like, because I know he visited the headquarters, but getting to know Tommy Paul, he's by all accounts just a very likable uh, good guy and somebody that's been open. I mean, as coach Brad Stein told me literally a month ago that, look, we had to get him to lock back into tennis, but once he made that commitment, it's like a different player, different person, but what's it like to get to know him and kind of, you know, the behind the curtain of Tommy Paul. Yeah. His, um, his manager at the time, uh, Jermaine reached out to me, uh, and I had just written about him. Cause it just came off. He was it catching hatching off. He beat or, where is it? Dimitrov. He had a very good win in Australia that, uh, the previous D- Dimitrov. Slam. Yeah, yeah. Dimitrov. Yeah. yeah. He said that was, that was really fun. And, and that was a late one too, but I remember <laughs> writing it. And I think he saw me mention Tommy in a blog 
And he's like, man, we'd love to have him come. And I was like, well, one, we don't have a tennis podcast. I have a Yankee podcast that that doesn't that doesn't gel there. <laughs> yeah. And like, no offense at the time. He's not big enough to go on like part mm-hmm. of my take. And I think he would admit that, too. You know, he was outside the top 50 or like fringe top 50 then. Um, but I was like, hey, man, we got a ping pong table that we we, we started this like we barstool streams. Uh, we just had like a stream room where we just play like darts and ping pong and cornhole, or whatever. I'm like, Hey, we got a ping pong table. We just wants to like, you know, mess around for a little bit. He came in, we met him and a few of his boys came with, and we, we played for like two plus hours for whatever reason. I always talk about this with, my, with Frankie, my coworker, like that video never made the light of day. And I don't know where it went, but he just played us for two hours. And I think I got like six or seven points on him. He was only beaten once. Okay. And, but man, like you, you question like, okay, does the ping pong translate, you know, with tennis and all that? It does with Tommy. He was ridiculous, but also like just the coolest, nicest dude. He wasn't like in his groove then. And from that point for like a little, a year or two, you didn't know what was going on with him. And maybe as you were talking about with his coach, like, you know, with the focus problems, but then all of a sudden something clicked last year, yeah. or maybe it was just winning that title. The Sweden one, right? I think that was one at the end of that year. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that. I was, where was I? Was I in San? I was, I was somewhere not in this, uh, not in this state. I mean, maybe I was Florida and I was watching it and I was just so pumped for him. It was so, you know, not the biggest term in the world, but man, just a little bit of success for a tennis player with like, you know, how much uh, mental game tennis is can do wonders for him. I feel like from that point, he just jumped and, uh, and also, I will say, I think the dating game with him, who he's dating at certain points, I think does <laughs> yeah. wonders for him. And I think yeah. right now with Paige, he's in a very good spot. Yeah. So I just like, you know, it's the mental game. You just yeah. got to be happy off the court and relaxed. And uh, it's fun. He's one of the best athletes, I feel like, on the tour. And uh, when he's got it all going, he's an extremely fun person to watch. Yeah, Riley Opelka told me he was Ferris Bueller growing up. So I could kind of see a little bit of that coming forward. But no, I mean, he's... <laughs> It was when, for me, it was when he beat Alcaraz in Canada last summer. That was cool. I mean, that was, well, like you, you put that up. That was a three hour match and just the ability to stay in there. The Aussie semi, no shame, obviously, in losing to Novak Djokovic in a tournament that he's owned for so long, but he's somebody that I've got my eye on. And, you know, you look forward to what I guess to kind of segue Tiafo said about, we want to get the game to be a little more lax on some of these strict codes. You, You reference it with the sitting down for a couple games and not going in. Yeah. I think that there could be a way, and, and I'll toss it to you on this one, but we have all these 250 tournaments, people knowing the show, listening to this show know what that means, but the smaller event should be something where you can try some things. Doesn't mean it's going to stick, but why not just experiment with, you know, some noise and, you know, opening things up a little bit. I don't hate it. I think noise is like, I don't know. <laughs> I like when a crowd is energized and, you know, some people, you know, you'll, you'll read some Reddit comments afterwards and they'll be like, oh, the crowd was so bad or whatever. It's like, ah, yeah, kind of a little disrespect, but like, I don't know, fun atmospheres are fun atmospheres, man. And that, yeah. that like, when you hear crowd roars, like mm-hmm. really get into it, you know, maybe a little boozed up or whatever, have some fun with it. Like, I don't, don't just try not to be too like, you know, stuck up, but I just, just enjoy it a little bit. I, you know, and I like when guys mm-hmm. play to the crowd and, and feed with it and maybe yeah. they're against the crowd or whatever, you know, Medvedev, you know, he <laughs> likes to do that. And Novak <laughs> thrives. It's basically his, his fuel is, is, yeah. is an angry crowd, a hostile crowd, yeah. but yeah, I, I almost, you know, the I get the the tradition of being polite and all that, mm-hmm. but I do also like the side where it gets yeah. hostile and rowdy. Yeah, not, a, not every tournament has to be waste management, a golf right. reference there, but hey, it doesn't mean you're going to play poorly. You reference Medvedev and Djokovic doing well. How about Ben Shelton in Australia 
playing an Aussie. He was going back to his college days. This is just a road game. And he went out there and beat him in front of, in front of his home faithful. I had no doubt in my mind he was going to win that match. Yeah. No, no doubt in my mind. Like he, he's just so – he his Florida clips are so much fun to just go back and watch and just – just gets so into it and he picks his spots of when to really scream and it's like and <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just an incredibly yeah we talk about I, I think he's probably a year or two away from like con, like top 10 ish or whatever consistently in that level and then he'll probably won't leave it for a very long time but man that guy has all the tools and he's exciting and you know his he smiles all the time yeah. he's having fun out there Ben Shelton is going to be a <laughs> super he's he's pro it, the question is not it's not if an American player breaks through, it's whether someone does it before Ben Shelton does. That's Ooh, the way I'm looking at okay. it. Can can one can Fritz, Tommy, Tiafo, uh, Sebi, can one of those guys win a slam before Shelton does? Because Shelton's gonna win one. I would I would agree with that. I think Sebi would be a guy that I would put upside in. Now the wrist is always a, a sensitive thing, but yeah, Shelton is also. If you want to compare other sports, he's the project I would like to take on because he's so good but still so raw that yeah. the right coach. This could be a very profitable opportunity. Yeah, he's got to kind of learn like the rhythm of the game a little bit, if that makes any sense, but has all the tools to do quite literally anything he wants. And like to have, you know, his kind of speed, the his ability to hit any single shot with that serve, mm -hmm. just just a nightmare for almost anybody who's met. You still right now, it's like he's probably not gonna I would be shocked if he wins a slam in the next year or whatever, but there's no top seed that wants to face him yeah. in like the second or third round of the slam. That is just not a fun opportunity. And I guess it leads to the bigger question right now. Alcaraz is the guy. I mean, there's still obviously Djokovic, but for this generation, we know Alcaraz is the guy, not perfect, but close to it based on how he <laughs> plays. What will it take for an American or another player, his era to step up and beat him in a big tournament? Because it's as tall a task as there is right now. Well, first of all, I need a tournament where Djokovic and Carlos are in the... Are, now, I guess it's going to happen with Rome, right? <laughs> like happened, still, has it happened since Madrid last year? That is just that absurd. Isn't insane? Yeah. I actually wrote a blog. I don't. I think I was just talking about Carlos like a week ago. And in it, I had said like, here we go, Madrid, finally Carlos. And then like four hours later, Novak drops out. And I had to post mm -hmm. like an update on it. But I think Rome right now, mm -hmm. we're, we're locked in. So, okay, yeah. everyone just... <laughs> bubble wrap each other you know no one get you know yeah. get sick get hurt or whatever that they need to face each other is that's really what it comes like that will be that's the real test here because when carlos wins a tournament it's like well you put an asterisk over that novak's not in it and then you know if, if carlos had his injury didn't play the aussie a little bit after that you know novak did his so i want to see him play each other but man what it takes to beat him and honestly i get the feel like you you have a chance to do it at best of three sets here although no one's really even like up until the final in Madrid, no one even took a set off the kid. Mm -hmm. And he's just getting better and better and, and more experienced and stronger. Health is really the only thing that's going right. to stop him. But once you get to slams where it's best of five sets, it turns into one of those things where it is so hard. Even if you're up 2-0, like the, mm -hmm. the classic Novak, right? Like yeah. he'll just be able to reset, do his thing, and just destroy you. Once he gains like that little sliver of momentum, there's nothing you can do. I, I just always credit – I hate Novak because obviously team <laughs> fed, um, but I respect so much his mental game. Yeah. And Carlos has a bit of that. Carlos has that yeah. ability to just flip the switch, and once it's switched, you have no chance of beating him. I mean, the last – that U.S. Open run was, what, three straight five-setters and then a four-setter? Yeah. Like, on the, <laughs> finishing it. There's no reason he should have beaten Sinner. None. Like, if you – there were so many moments where he was just done. Like, oh – 
damn, he he broke back here, but there he lost. There's no way he can do it here. There were like four no way moments yeah. in that match alone, and it just didn't matter. Sinner is a guy that I think does have the weapons to be in the fight with him. Aside from that, and I know most you know, casual fans might not know the John Leonard Stroop story, the finalist last week in Madrid, but maybe that's, and maybe why it's a guy like Shelton or, or somebody like that. I think you have to have a big serve and you have to shorten points because you're not going to win an endurance test with him. It just won't happen. He moves too well. It's it's insane. Um, you're probably right. Um, you at least have to like, this a big serve like that has to push him off the court a little bit and not because once he gains court yeah. control, and then he's able to push you with his forehand mm-hmm. and then throw you with that drop shot, which I compare <laughs> to the Steph Curry three of just being one of the more unstoppable moves in sports. Yeah. But once he's pushing you with his forehand and you're, you're just too off the court, you have no chance. So maybe it is the formula is a big serve yeah. and just get him off balance that way. Otherwise, you have no chance. <laughs> like Rafa. I mean, that was the book on him. It's like yeah. he didn't take weapons. Uh, yep. A few more things with Barstool's Eric Cubs yep. here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Well, I don't want to let you go without bringing up the topic of, you know, I wouldn't even say villains, but the counterculture guys in tennis. And there's Nick Kyrgios, who a lot's been said, good and bad about him. Holger Rune stepping into that role as well. And I, I'm not on the side of we need people to just be jerks out there, but it is yep. nice to have some people that are going against the grain, and I'll call them mavericks, let's say. I, listen, like Nick block when Nick does something, I blog it. Like that guy is so polarizing. And I, you know, some people think he's horrible for sport. I think the sport needs it neat. Well, maybe not needs him anymore because he may have bridged the gap to Carlos and like, you know, the guy who's really taking, taking the reins here. But for a little while, we really needed Nick mm-hmm. to do his thing and to win a few tournaments and make a few runs and anything he does at the Aussie is electric it's a shame he wasn't there mm-hmm. this past one, but um, I absolutely love watching him play, and he is just willing to speak his mind on yeah. quite literally anything. Um, and he loves his Celtics, so I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, they like the, the love of the NBA, and Holger is getting there too. And and of course, who is there to defend Holger? But Nick, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. right there with him because he kind of he only feels him. He knows what what he's going through. Um, from what I understand, I think that's really just a Stan versus Holger thing. I, I really don't think Holger is I, – I I think he means well. I no, think he gets a yeah. little I – I think he feeds yeah. off the crowd a ton, and it may be – and he's still young. What's he, 20? 20. And, uh, and, yeah, he's just he's so talented. What's he, number seven now? He'll be definitely one of the names making big noise at the French. Um, I, I think I – don't, I don't find anything wrong with those guys. I think they're great for the sport. Yeah, maybe not like you, – you shouldn't have to like – I, would, I don't want people forcing themselves to become a villain, mm-hmm. but when it naturally flows that way and it's yeah. a guy who plays with the crowd and maybe the crowd isn't going with them and he plays with that yeah. and it makes them angrier and better, that's cool. That's all fun. That's exciting. That's that's the stuff that tennis that tennis casuals and people who don't even like tennis, when they see those clips on Twitter, that's, okay, yeah. when's that guy playing next? I want to see those matches. I don't want to see boring stuff. <laughs> I want to see Nick Kyrgios, you know, going between his legs and, and you know, pumping up the crowd and, you know, just – it's just yeah. awesome watching those guys. So um, it is funny that, that Nick is is to Holger's side here, but uh, it, it does seem like, well, at least maybe I'm just going off Nick's quotes, but like he is well-liked in, mm-hmm. in the locker room. There are a lot of people who like Holger and maybe Stan is just one of those guys aging out of the sport a little bit and doesn't tolerate it because, you know, he's used to the, the Federer days, you know? Yeah, I think I think the Stan stuff, they were water under the bridge with that. I think they were able to kind of let bygones be bygones, which is fine. Like, it's competitive. You're not friends yeah. out there. You you handle it in the locker room. 
And Kyrgios, I've been on record. As long as he's giving effort, that was the one issue I had, the tanking matches, which it seems he's grown up with. But yeah. no, it's great. Say whatever, play differently. It's it's a fun, exciting thing. And we know that when Kyrgios plays like that Wimbledon match against Tsitsipas where he just dragged him completely down into the mud and Tsitsipas didn't know how to handle it. And I love that. It's a different strategy tactic that we see in sports all the time. I I was so excited going into that match and that match delivered everything and more. Like so very few like yeah. sports sports like matchups can be great on paper and like you know the, the the trash talk and then once it happens and that literally was exactly what we needed and wanted. Yeah. It was so cool for him to make yeah, oh my god. I, I loved I loved every part of that match and he had to he I mean to for Nick to be on the side of in control. In like in terms of his emotions and to get Sitsi Pass to like you know spike the ball or whatever and then yeah. oh my god the the theatrics of Nick complaining to the umpire like he should get so a point good. penalty like the roles reversed there it was all too good those matches were perfect it was so good uh, well before we wrap this up this has been a blast uh, looking at Rome our last big tournament expanded draw which is a new thing going forward this year you like any picks like any plays for Rome or Roland Garros where it's Alcaraz Djokovic and then. Obviously, we don't know with Rafa. Any uh, any picks you like there? Yeah. So so Rafa is not in Rome, right? He's not he? in Rome. Yeah, not in Rome. Right. So, man, it's every every year I do this <laughs> where I have a conversation with my buddies, you know, who we bet on tennis, and we're like, and, and we'll we'll see like a you know an interesting line with Rafa where he's not as big of a favorite, and we'll convince ourselves like, okay, they're trying to bait people to take Rafa here. Let's be the guys that knocks out Rafa French. <laughs> It never works. It just doesn't. And we're here again. He hasn't played in months. He's not the favorite. He's not even the second favorite, right? I believe mm -hmm. he's the third behind Djokovic. Yeah. What are we going to see here? Because you know, I, I feel like the plan here is he wins this and he rides off into the sunset. This feels there's no better way. To... Though I mean, he he's never not played wrong. Like that's he's never right. not played anything. So I know what you're saying. This is we're all idiots because we always he was third favorite last year, by the way. And he's and he won. So yeah. So like we we put we he's putting clearly all of his eggs in this basket, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't want to um, mess with any potential injury coming into this, you know, a, a, in, in a random tournament that just prevented him from playing the French because that's obviously all he cares about. So it's going to be an interesting conversation with my brain over the next week week or so. Hey, do we think Rafa can do this again? Do we want to be in the same situation as we are where he's facing Casper Ruud and Casper can't do a single thing because it's Rafa on clay? Like, mm -hmm. and you go down the list. And you, you, I mean, it's just impossible to know how healthy he is. It's just, no one has any clue. clue. Um, and, you know, if he faces a Carlos, I don't think he'd have a chance. Like, I, but, but that's me saying that. And then three weeks from now, he beats Carlos. And I'm like, I did it again. Rafa did it again because he's Rafa Nadal on clay at, at Roland Garros. Um, and then there's the question with Novak, man. Like, what is his situation? I mean, we'll, we'll get a good test here, like in Rome, but his elbow looked all out of sorts, and he's had elbow issues in the past. You know, um, so my pick is Carlos because he's an absolute machine, and if you pick against him, you're just not going to have a good time. Maybe you, maybe you end up being right by picking against Carlos, but you—it's not fun. You'd rather root for Carlos. He's doing his stuff, even when he seems down and out, and he switches the momentum. There's nothing like it right now in tennis. So he's just an easy guy to root for. I want him to win French and start racking up those slams, and and you know, go up that list because we're stuck at one. Uh, but <laughs> let's get higher. He is very fun, and he is money when he's down a break as well. Like, nobody oh you'd God. rather have coming back into a match, into a set, than Carlos yeah. Alcaraz. And I and I got to say, I think you're in the same boat. Like, growing up as a Federer guy, it's a little sad, though, to see. So Federer's gone, and now Rafa, it's coming. Like, this, this era is changing. And then 
before you know it or it's already happened, then you're just older than all the tennis players. I know that is that is sad. Yeah, like I'm older than Tommy. Like yeah. that's just depressing. Yeah. Um, I will say, yes, it's sad, a hundred percent. Um, like you see him hosting the Met Gala and he's just in post retirement mode. I'm like, God, he still looks like he could play. Like, why don't you just give it one more go? That's not happening. But um, it is nice because Rafa is fading out here, whether this is his last one or whatever, you know, how many more he tournaments he even plays at this point. But it's nice that there is a true heir to the throne here because, you know, you thought for a little bit with Fed bowing out and then Med kind of like lost his mental game a little bit once he collapsed to Rafa. Like, is Novak just going to blow through these guys and end up with 35 grand slams? <laughs> yeah. The answer is no, because here's Carlos Alcaraz, who, and granted, they've only played once, but man, he's not going anywhere. He's only getting stronger, better, smarter, faster, whatever it is. He's, it's all increasing right. by, the, by the second. Djokovic is going to have to scratch, you know, you know, for every inch he can to win another slam at this point if Carlos is healthy in there. And that's really fun. And that's all I can really ask for. Yeah, it's look, it's shaping up to be because just because we haven't seen Djokovic and Alcaraz in the same tournament, it's shaping up to be a tremendous Rome, an amazing French Open. Could see Rafa bowing out as well. There's just so many possibilities here. We know there's going to be chaos. Uh, Hubs, this has been a, this has been a blast. Uh, pleasure chatting with you. Always a fan of your work. Last thing, the New York sports scene. I know the Knicks are down. I know the Yankees are kind of there. It's it's a little better than it was maybe a couple years ago. There is that. Yeah, the Knicks were, you know, they may, they want a playoff series and all that. I don't know what their ceiling per se is. The Yankees are a mess with injuries. Uh, I'm just, hey, U.S. Open, let's get let's get here quickly this year. Because uh, I don't know what these next few months are going to be. Judge is back tonight, so that's a little positive stuff. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the U.S. Open at this point more than the Yankees. All right, that was Barstool Hubs. Follow him on Twitter at Barstool Hubs. He's putting out great picks and, uh, you know, leading the fight for tennis in America in the pop culture. Uh, Norman Kleutcher, but uh, Eric Hubbs, always a pleasure, man. Appreciate you. We'll have to do this again. Thanks for coming. Thanks, on. Mitch. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for having me on. It was a blast. Huge thanks to Barstool's Eric Hubbs for appearing on this week's show. Hubbs was a blast to talk to. Always uh, a pleasure to talk to new like-minded tennis people. Check him out on Twitter. Check out his blogs. He's growing the game one match at a time. So thanks to Hubbs for appearing on the show. Now we talk to Chris Cleary, esteemed tennis journalist, wrote the definitive Roger Federer book titled The Master in 2021. And he's going to be on the grounds in Paris for the French Open. We break down all the storylines heading into it. Alcaraz defending his Madrid title. Sabalenka as a major threat to Spiontek's Roland Garros repeat chances. Novak Djokovic back. A lot to discuss what Nadal's status will be. Here's Chris Cleary to break all that down on Tennis Channel Inside It. All right, now welcoming on to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Mitch Michaels here. It's Chris Clary, tennis journalist, second time on the show, uh, getting ready to go over to Europe for the French Open. Talking to him from his uh, place in San Diego, Chris, thank you for coming back on the show. And as we discussed, there's a lot to talk about as we are ramping up this road to Roland Garros. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, Mitch, it's, it's been going on here with all the clay happening, and these tournaments all seem kind of like Roland Garros. They're all lasting nearly as long now. The, Madrid tournament and Rome, these are almost two weeks now. So it's it's kind of hard to distinguish the pecking order, but Roland Garros is still the king, right? It certainly is. And that's a perfect jumping off point. The extended masters, Madrid and Rome, taking the Indian Wells and Miami model. I know you're, you classify yourself, or I classify you as a tennis purist and uh, a true tennis journalist. 
Where do you stand on this? Where it's, you know, on, on one hand, I think it's fair to understand that it's creating more opportunity for players to play in these events and chances of that regard. But it is longer. It's extending the season. Mentally, it can be taxing. Where do you stand on the expanded draws in Madrid and now Rome? You know, I think it's uh, everybody has a right to take their product and do what they want with it in, in terms of, um, you know, you're running the ATP, you're running the WTA. I think it, it is problematic in terms of what it does for the whole uh, population of players and that, you know, it kind of makes those the only shows in town for, for long chunks of time. Obviously, the draws are expanded. That's positive. Uh, it gets more players into that prize money pool uh, gives you know more players an opportunity to play a masters 1000 or a WTA 1000, but a lot of them are going to lose early. Mm. And then you're kind of in a situation where you're really out of commission for a couple of weeks. And if you play back to back, like you do with uh, now Madrid and Rome, you're talking about a month. So I, I feel like they need to have more content in those, in those windows. And if you break tennis up into just a bunch of mega events throughout the whole year, yeah. I think a lot of the world and a lot of communities really enjoy those that 250, 500 level tennis, and we need more of it in some ways, not less. Yeah. I recognize I'm not going to get the star power, but I still think those things have a lot of momentum and a lot of uh, a lot of meaning to their communities, and, and they bring a lot to tennis to have you know, more small tournaments people, players can kind of make their names on. But at the same time, if you're Andre Gaudenzi or you're Steve Simon, clearly these mixed events are where the, uh, the media pop is, um, where the prize money and sponsorship pop is. So making those events that you're having already bigger and better, yeah. you know, that's a strategy. I do wonder in an umbrella sort of situation, Mitch, I don't know how you feel about this, but if you look at the way, what makes a grand slam, what makes a major, sure, a lot of it's tradition. And right now, you know, these tournaments expanding isn't going to threaten people viewing the French Open or viewing Wimbledon as a major. But down the road, it's a different equation. I mean, if it's 12 days versus 14 or 15, for sure, women get the best of three both places, uh, you know, these sort of a series of, two week buildups with their yeah. sort of mini series feeling, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it gets tricky to sort of see how that impacts the grand slam brand going forward. Well, I would say, I mean, you mentioned it, right? Like they can do whatever they want with their product. Madrid used to play on blue clay for that year. So they can do whatever they want with their product. And I, I understand the positives of it, the more opportunity for the prize money. There is something to be said though, about the fact that Miami and Indian Wells, the comparison there, that is a special time in the calendar where there is no Grand Slams on the horizon. There's not heavy buildups. It's that North American little mini swing. I just, I, I have some kind of, you know, now nostalgia because it's a year ago and you look at Monte Carlo where there's something cool about great matches early in these tournaments where you start a draw with just action. And I don't know. I mean, I, I do think there might be some fatigue for the players, for the fans even, where we're going into another, like you said, two-week draw where, okay, Let's just wait a couple of days to see how it shakes out, what the matches are. Because I think a lot of people are looking at these first few days, unfortunately, Chris, is, has the tournament really started yet? Has the ac action ramped up, which wasn't the case last year? Yeah, I think even now, I mean, I have people who are casual fans, you know, ask me about what's going on at Indian Wells or Miami, and, and they don't even know, you know, sort of when the thing kind of really ramps yeah. up and sort of when they anticipate these big matches. I mean, people that are inside the sport at those events recognize that it starts to go in that first weekend. And that's where you get the big seeds playing and it all ramps up. But the average, you know, sports fan or casual tennis fan does not even understand that now with those tournaments yeah. history. But I think the interesting point on the, on what, what it does to the players is what is on time and what is off time. So mm -hmm. basically, you know, you have the day off. If you're a seed, you can arrive at Madrid or, or in Rome and have a, have a day off now pretty much programmed if you win a few matches between them. But 
I'm not sure players view that as downtime. I mean, I think that's mentally, especially when you're there and you're into that story of that tournament, you're in it and you're, yeah. and you're, you're working. I, mean, I think Igish Fiontech said this a couple of days ago, you know, we're still doing our routines and our rhythms when we're not playing. And once we're at a tournament, it becomes kind of a set piece that can be draining mentally. I think on players and you know, this, the clay court swing. Yeah. It's those masters 1000s in a seven day or eight day kind of format are super intense. Yeah. The players get a break afterward if they want to schedule the things that now you're going to head into Roland Garros. Carlos Alcaraz, for example, if he goes deep in Rome and ends up playing, that's a lot of tennis. Yeah. It's backed up one after the other before you head into Paris. Yeah. And, and it's worth noting the players. I mean, there's been some on the WTA, especially players that have spoken out about the mental grind. Andy Samova is going to take a break. We wish her well. Andrescu Bedosa have said, look, it's tough mentally. The season getting even now longer is not what you know they want to happen. I'll, I'll add some sort of context, though, Chris. We're getting some of the best challengers of all time because I think that <laughs> second-week challenger of these big events is turning into just an all-star field. I mean, we had two top 50 guys looking, you know, going deep into the one with Murray and Tommy Paul. So maybe that's a positive for some of these challenger events that they're attracting players, but, you know, it's one way to look at it, I guess. Yeah, maybe so. And if, if that's the case, let's promote that. Let's uh, let's make that clear that this is going to be the, the point these players are going to uh, make and they're going to go this direction. And let, let the sport, let's have it be happenstance. Let's mm-hmm. let's kind of get that as part of the plan and and make it that way and not make it seem like an afterthought. And I, I think that's great. Yeah, but mm-hmm. the challenger can play that role of taking tennis to other communities and, and giving more players, you know, playing opportunities. Um, that's good. But I, I feel like this system, I understand the appeal. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly how you, you, know, you sell a package to sponsors and broadcasters is you have these big events, the Masters 1000s, and they get bigger the longer they get in a way. Yeah. But to have the whole year with these things, taking up all that air and space, and your top players kind of committed to that, you know, is is that the best, best use of their of all their time? I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a good debate. Well, as we look at Madrid in the rear view, it goes back to a familiar face defending his title. Carlos Alcaraz, you know, defends it again, beats Jan Leonard Struff in an exceptional three-set match. But up until that point, it was smooth sailing for Alcaraz. And before we get into the context of the match, Chris, I am just so impressed with how he's professional at such a young age, how he's assumed the role as the top dog, and how he continues to be process-oriented, much like his countrymate Rafael Nadal. Alcaraz, who just turned 20, hard to believe, continues mm-hmm. to just do all the right things and check all the boxes. This was an expected result, and yet he achieved it. And I think that's an underrated part of becoming an all-time great. Yeah, that's really the thing that's so appealing and exciting about him, as you can see him just sort of busting through these barriers uh, and these sort of going over these plateaus and jumping up to the next one. And he seems like he really understands with the people he's got around him, with Ferrero as his coach and his, his advisors who worked with people like David Ferrer for a long time. They have a lot of experience. I think they're helping him, you know, really keep his feet on the ground, but not too much on the ground the way he plays, but <laughs> yeah. certainly on the ground metaphorically. And, and he seems like he, uh, he's kind of routining it now in some ways, you know, it's interesting. He's only 20. He's going to be playing Rome here really for the first time. So it's, but it still feels like he's sort of doing things he's done before. And now has, has a veteran attitude about it and the way he's managing his matches Mm-hmm. very much in veteran mode where you can sort of see him kind of managing the flow, managing the risks, managing the shot selections better than he was a year ago. And he was doing pretty well a year ago too, if you recall, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Joko and Nadal on clay. So uh, to me, he's, if he stays healthy and he keeps his, you know, his team 
stable and around him and people like who he has now, the sky's the limit. Definitely. Sky's certainly the limit. Uh, I do want to give a, a unbelievable props to Jan Leonard Stroop for becoming a lucky loser, getting into the event, going all the way to the final that had not happened in a master's event. And he took a set off Alcaraz and gave him a match. Now, what a run for a guy who has had success at times on clay even, but to do that and get to the final was remarkable. And in that match, he played a style that, you know, I'm going to ask the question, Chris, how can you beat Carlos Alcaraz or what is it going to take to beat this guy? I don't know if there is a set answer, but Struff was going for it. He had his weapons and he was trying to just shorten the points. And I don't know that he's ultimately the guy to do it, but this seemed like a way, maybe a blueprint that if you're going to beat him, this might be your best chance. Yeah, I mean, not many guys are going to be able to play that way against Carlos on, on clay, especially. Um, but I, I do think that's a good approach. I mean, like, like a great player with all those options, if you rush him and give, give him some sort of, um, you know, pressure to work the magic, you're going to get more errors out of that yeah. for sure. But it's it's a tough, tough road to hoe if you're not used to doing it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like a Maxime Cressy type of style or yeah. the way Struth was playing, there aren't many who can. But I think the idea of selectively attacking yeah. – is is a good play against him because frankly once he gets into that mode where he covers the corners he sets you up with that massive forehand and then next thing you know you get a drop shot if you give him a little too much time he's just gonna he's gonna own you i think and he seems like he's gotten more stable in terms of his emotional management of matches now i would imagine that's only going to get better as time goes on here as he gets more and more confidence in his abilities and his understanding of how many choices he has and how many of them are good choices because he's got a lot, a lot of options. <laughs> it's interesting, too, because he's someone, as any young guy, we're always wondering, okay, well, no matter how good it is, what's it going to look like in a major best of five? He's like the one guy where you're like, oh, it's going to be fine. Like, we can just, there's no there's no way you're going to doubt this guy in a conditioning test. And if you need any reference for that, look at last year's U.S. Open when he went five sets three times followed by a four-set final. Plus, a lot of times going to bed at 3.30 or 4 in the morning and having to yeah. get up. It was like, you know, living the New York uh, city never sleeps life the, all the way through. Yeah, I mean, I would say the interesting thing about Paris is because what we just discussed earlier in this with the the buildup of these big sort of what do you call mini slams, if you yeah. will. That's a different sort of psychological dynamic. And he has been the guy at these tournaments. And obviously, Djokovic is now there in, in Rome, but there's been no Rafa. So it, the focus has really been on Carlos. Mm-hmm emotional aspect of it playing the match you know Monte Carlo coming in Barcelona I mean sorry Barcelona and uh and Madrid he was the main focus you yeah. got other Spanish players but he was the thing and just to get that level of veneration that level of interest in him in Spain is just massive so right. uh, that can drain you and, I, and that's something new I mean he's had a, some experiences like that but not that kind of consistent sort of spotlight uh, emotional energy having to be dealt with um yeah. we'll see if he arrives in Paris with a full tank. Right. I think it depends on how it goes in Rome, you know? And that could be a factor for the endurance mentally as well as physically. Yeah, the o- the only concern I have with him, and, and I don't know if I'd consider it minor or major, somewhere in between, is just staying healthy, managing the schedule. We've seen him get injured in matches. We've seen him miss time. So this Rome week, I'm watching it from the eye of not necessarily what the result is, but just how he gets through this tournament, what the body looks like. But we know when he's in an event, he's going to play well, and he's probably going to be the favorite. So as long as he can manage... You know, his body at such a young age, and start, it seems like he's starting to do that with his style as well. So that's the only concern. Yeah, yeah I think also knowing, you know, when to use your big shots, when to close out matches, you know, win more in straight sets and uh, and kind of limit the pounding. But I think the way he plays, as acrobatic as, as he is, you know, it's sort of Djokovician in a lot of ways. 
uh, in terms of how yeah. he throws his body around the court with that. And I'm not sure he's as inherently flexible or as trained to be as inherently flexible as, and resistant as, as Novak did from a very young age. Yeah. Maybe he did. I, yeah. That was not my impression, but I think it's something he's come to a little bit later on. Yeah. I, I just, you know, this decision to play, to play Rome is an interesting one. I, he's taken the number one ranking by doing it. Um, I think they felt last year he maybe didn't have his best, his A game in Paris when he needed it after skipping Rome. Mm. And I think the decision was made because his body was a little bit beat up. They weren't sure how he would mentally process that great tournament in Madrid. Yeah. I think they felt ultimately that the altitude shift from Madrid to Paris didn't really help his game entirely. And they needed to get him back mm. at that great, uh, you know, ideal altitude, ideal kind of conditions on ramp, which Rome is. Yeah. But if you go super deep there, I mean, that's a lot of, yeah spotlight time a lot of emotional intensity a lot of celebration and excitement but can you carry that again you know how long can you sustain that and paris will be even more the spotlight even a bigger thing because it's a slam and uh and everybody's ready for him to uh you know go super deep there so i think that's that's where the challenge lies it's a good point to monitor alcarez's game uh the madrid women's final was uh, a banger of a match with sabalenka top and igas fiantec in three sets sabalenka wins her second clay court title both of them are in madrid 2021 and now this year uh this was this was a great match and i know these two players they bring out the best in each other it's a little chilly in the air when they play but sabalenka start with this chris no matter what you say about her and how she plays her ups and her downs she plays the match on her terms and i really respect that that is a player that will go out on her shield when it's not going well and will up <laughs> her level when she needs it but she she is a power player who stepped it up mightily in winning madrid Mm, no, it's true. She, and she's obviously got a little bit more uh, stability in her game now. And, and that's the difference. But I remember talking about, you know, three or four years ago when she really emerged for the first time, talking to some of the greats like Navratilova and Tracy Austin, Chris Everett. And they all saw you know, the upside there. They all could see that. I wouldn't call it next level power because it's kind of Serena level power, I would say. But it's Serena level power mm -hmm. and Serena level pop and um, off both wings. And the serve back in those days was, was pretty stable and pretty good. So she had those time in the wilderness that she spent and now she's out of that. But yeah, one swipe of the racket for movement has clearly improved. Um, I think she knew it had to looking at the way Iga Siontek was playing last year. Uh, but I think arena's package is, is a, is a potent one. And she played a lot of doubles at one point, obviously very successful at it. So she can play the net as well. Yeah. And I just love Mitch. I've been around long enough that I've been complaining about this. I feel like a broken record even though not many records exist anymore, but I feel like I've been asking for a rivalry on the WTA side for so long. Here we go. And, and I really feel like the sport needs it. And, you know, who knows, but you can certainly see with Sabalenka and Rybakina and with Sabalenka and Sviantec, you know, that's been, yeah. WTA's had better matchups than the ATP they, this year. They, they, have, the they have, and something to be said is that Sabalenka's proven she's an all-court player now. We're getting to a point where, obviously, there are players that do better on different surfaces. Iga's so dominant on clay. Sabalenka's proven now that she can play on clay, play on hard court as well, and she has stepped up her game. I, I want to ask you, without taking any disrespect or any credit away from Sabalenka, is there something with, you know, you mentioned the Madrid altitude and everything that's, you know, how that court and how that setup is. She's won two clay court titles on Madrid, hasn't had the deepest runs in Roland Garros. Do you think her game is maybe more suited for the conditions in Madrid? Because this isn't a fluke now. Yeah, she did well in Stuttgart too, but that's indoor clay. So that's, that's you know, mm -hmm. pretty, pretty pure conditions. I don't know. I mean, as long as she's moving pretty well, that kind of power, she can hit through mm -hmm. anything. 
if she's comfortable with the footing um, and I think her timing and I think it actually makes her in some ways maybe more dangerous uh, because yeah. she's got a little more time and her shots because he has an extra level of extra gear, extra level of power that can do damage. Other players right. cannot. So yeah, I mean, is it her best surface? No, but I think, it, I think she'll be fine at sea level, yeah. sea level clay. And the other thing worth mentioning is you look at her as an all court player. I mean, I like her game on grass and her mentality on yeah. grass a lot more than Iga Sviantek. So yeah. he's really at this point in time, we'll see how Iga goes forward on grass, but uh, Sabalenka probably um, with Rybakina not far behind is, is a triple surface threat really. Do you think we've gotten to a point because going into this tournament, Sabalenka was you know a distant second, let's say around 13 to one or so to the French open. That numbers come down a lot. There's a huge gap between anybody else. It's Iga, Sabalenka, everybody else. Is this setting up to where those two, in your mind, should be the overwhelming favorites to win the French? Yeah, I think people were thinking about maybe Krajikova, Barbora, you know, with her being able to, um, you know, play so well a couple of years ago, has a, has a great game for Clay. I think people were looking at her early results this season saying that she would be, a, you know, a pie in that mix. Hasn't really had that uh, big result in the lead-up tournaments to justify that feeling. Certainly a very dangerous player. Um Rabakina, if she's healthy, clearly has had success in Paris before. Mm. Has a similar situation, you know, Sabalenka, that she's able to, uh, mm. with that, that pace and movement, generate the pace on the clay and, and do a lot of damage on any surface. But, yeah, I think those two have earned their spots. Yeah. Ego certainly at the top and, and Arena just, just after her, for sure. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. More with Chris Cleary here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, I do want to mention with Igas Fiontech, you know, she still looked great in that match. She won Stuttgart. This is a great year for the number one player. It would be great for anybody. But she has last year chasing her. She has the standard she set last year. Is that a pressure that you could see creeping in a little bit? That, you know, last year she won the Sunshine Double. She wasn't able to this year. Sabalenka got her in a big clay court match. Is there pressure creeping into Iga after she was so utterly dominant last year? I think so. I think it's, I think it's inevitable. I mean, that's that was her breakthrough season. I mean, obviously she broke through to win the French Open at a more closer to nowhere a couple of years ago. But last year was really when she consolidated it all. And it is a lot to bear. And it's also because of the responsibilities that come with it. I mean, every tournament you go to, you are part of the focus. And she's been doing that for a while now. There's a rhythm there, but it's also, uh, it can be draining. And and for sure, now that she sees um, other players coming up who can threaten her now, and 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 I think Sabalenka has always been on her radar, even though she had a string of beating her three times in a row in straights. She always knew how dangerous she could be from some of the early results, and and players can feel yeah there's a threat. So I think there is going to be a chances that during the course of the season when when Iga will be uh, kind of a little bit worn down by the pressure of of defending all those points. But to her credit, she's somebody who's very intentional. Mm. I've done a number of interviews with her now. She clearly is thinking about the big picture all the time with her team. And it's, and it's a strong team. They don't hide from the issue. They address it. They talk about it openly. They don't pretend that there's not going to be these uh, issues that are going to keep floating to the surface. And they try to, they try to preempt them. 
and she's played some great tennis. I mean, you've yeah. seen her come back and, and obviously in Stuttgart, for example, was just uh, playing so well and, and so sharp and so crisp. So I feel like um, they're on top of it, but inevitably there's going to be uh, moments where it'll, it'll get to her. Right. Her baseline game and not just playing at the baseline, but her floor, let's say, is so high. She's so consistent. She did not play bad in that match. It was all credit to Sabalenka. I trust her in most big matches, and I definitely feel like it's going to take a special outing to beat her. And look, if you want to put the perspective in it, as you know, being an all-time great, it's not just smooth sailing to a bunch of majors. There's going to be a pushback. There's going to be you have the target on your back, and it's how you respond. And you can look at Serena, the big three, the historical greats like Chrissy Everett or Martina. They weren't just unassailably the best. They got pushed, and, and more came out of them. So I think this is a great thing, and ties back to what you said. A rivalry in tennis is women's tennis is just great. Yeah, and, and really, I think you know it's early days, but I, I feel like um, there could be several on the WTA side if, if players can stay healthy. But that's a, that's been the issue. Players have stayed healthy or not have not stayed healthy, and they've also, you know, for off court reasons, uh, dropped off the radar. I mean, think about what situation a couple of years ago. Who do you think were going to be the factors going forward? It was going to be Naomi Osaka. It was probably going to be Emma Raducanu after watching what she did at the U.S. Open. Yeah, Ash Barty mm. is going to be there. I'm not saying that Naomi Osaka and Emma Raducanu won't come back and be factors in women's tennis again. Maybe they will, but at this moment, they're not. And so it's it's amazing how much that landscape has shifted in a hurry. And so you kind of hope it doesn't shift again that quickly because yeah. I don't think that is good. I think you need some continuity in a very competitive sports landscape globally. Um, I think you need to have appointment viewing and, you know, new players who emerge like an Alcaraz, certainly everybody wants to see him play. You could feel that in Indian yeah. Wells, how much the public wanted to see the guy live. You can feel it a little bit with people like Iga as well when you go to these tournaments, but nothing that beats appointment viewing when there's a rivalry involved. That's what you need. And, and the WTA has gone too long without it. Well, the last thing I want to say, and it's unfortunate to have to bring this up, but we're going to have to talk about it. I know the Madrid women's double situation was just not ideal in a lot of different ways. And, you know, the tournament itself, you know, did a great job in attracting the talent, giving us great matches. But the gaffe of not letting the women speak after, I just don't know how this oversight happened. And uh, it's unfortunate, not only because it's women's doubles, Chris, but these were some premier names in the sport. Like, no disrespect to exclusive doubles players. But when you have Coco Goff and you have Pagula, Victoria Azarenka, even had Ed Maya, I just don't understand how an oversight like this can happen. But I hope at the end of the day, everyone moves on and learns from it. Yeah, I haven't seen all the uh, all the reporting from Spain on it. I haven't seen all the uh, you know the explanations in full. But clearly, that's 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 just a bonehead move mm-hmm. um, in this era, especially in a tournament that's had some issues in the past with um, the way it presents for women and and uh, and sort of some of the allegations of sexism against the tournament. They need to be, I think, on the right side of that issue. And and you know, I clearly believe this situation's there's no real defense of it, mm-hmm. other than they were. They needed to, uh, you know, think it through ahead of time. I hope it wasn't any kind of a payback. Mm. That's how it appears from the outside for some of the comments that were made about Kate Gate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, Sabalenka would seem like a pretty minor thing in my view, and you can sort of view it from the Spanish <laughs> to a Spanish lens where Carlos Alcaraz is the next, next big thing in Spain, and yeah. so they want to celebrate his birthday. But <laughs> if that's the way they, they process that, they need a better processing system because yeah. that, was, that was way off base. I'm hopeful it's just a, a mistake we can move on from. Uh, and speaking of that, we're into the Rome Masters, the final stop on the road to Roland Garros, the final big stop 
Can you believe it's only the fourth time that Djokovic and Alcaraz are in the same draw? First since their epic match last year in Madrid. It's just, it's insane that we've been debating who the best player is between these two for a year now, and they haven't even been in any of the same tournaments. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's also the era we're in and, and Novak's uh, choices with the vac- with the vaccine and and Carlos's injury issues has all kind of created this, this situation. In a way, it's good if they end up playing now a lot for the rest of 2023, because that's what the public wants. And that's what, um, and we want to love to see Nadal hop back in the mix as well in some fashion if he's healthy enough to do so. Nothing beats those yeah. older generation, golden age guys against the new generation. Love to see it. And that's the match I think everybody wants to see the most. Alcaraz, Djokovic. So where are you with Novak in terms of, you know, we know the injury has happened and we also know that history says he's going to play better as the clay court season goes on. Monte Carlo is his worst. He's run one Rome the most as far as Masters go. But do you think going into this tournament specifically in Rome that rest or I guess reps would be more important for him because we don't really know the health on the outside, but he is somebody that likes to play his way into shape. So where do we fall on that issue? Yeah. Number two, last year he, he revived in Rome, played so well, ended up winning and they didn't, didn't get past Nadal at Roland Garros either. So it didn't necessarily pay off entirely on, on the clay side. It suddenly paid off at Wimbledon. I think the, the time that he put in to get his game back in shape. Look, honestly, I don't know. I don't see him winning this tournament uh, coming up in Paris, uh, if he's not pretty close to 100% healthy. Mm-hmm. So with the guys in front of him now, the level of tennis from Alcaraz, um, what he's able to do, some of the other guys who've had good seasons on clay, I don't think Novak's going to be able to pull this off unless he's near the top physically. So whatever he needs to do to manage that, yeah. I think he's better off coming into Roland Garros feeling good physically yeah. than having you know, just the right number of reps behind him. I think the reps need to be close to pain-free reps. So would you so that's the key. Would you say you'd be, I guess, surprised or not expecting him to even make the final? Because I know Alcaraz, like what he's done, obviously, near the top. If you're not healthy, you're probably not beating that guy. But would you think even a final run would be tough? Because they are going to be on opposite sides of the draw. Look, Mitch, I just I, I need to see him. I think we need to see him in Rome um, mm-hmm. this coming 10 mm-hmm. days and see how things go to make that decision. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like yeah. Novak, with his champion's mindset, understanding of clay court dynamics, his level of fitness. I don't know talking about his elbow or his yeah. arm, but his level of general fitness, mental strength, all those things. I mean, yeah. uh, and how, the way he played in Australia under duress um, when he was not 100% physically. Right. I wouldn't pick against him to go deep at all. But I obviously we're going to see how he does in yeah. Rome. And uh, if he comes in without a whole lot of confidence in the situation in his body, then different dynamic. Right. Well, I, I bring that up because it is an opportunity. You know, Alcaraz, for as great as he is, hasn't won here before. We, we have the Rafa conversation here coming, but Novak might not be healthy. Who are some of these players that you think could take advantage, could walk through that door? Sitsipas has made the final. He's a little uneven. Rublev finally won the Masters 1000 title. Olga Rune is capturing the minds of everyone. Fritz is good on clay. There's a lot of different options, but who are some players that you think could take advantage of an opening here? Well, I, I do think Sitsipas has, you know, obviously taken some hits. It hasn't hasn't been the honestly a, a great match player yet. Fair. The biggest matches he hasn't he hasn't come through and he hasn't he hasn't played. I don't think his best tennis in a lot of ways either. I'm thinking about the Australian Open final this year as well. So, but I think in terms of game tools uh, and the sort of style of play that can do well at Roland Garros with an attacking sort of style of play on clay, which I think not serving volley obviously, but sort of attack mind attacks attack mindset. I think he's the guy who has has the tools to uh, to be the wild card there. 
Um, I don't think Zverev is back to where he was a year ago, but that you know, obviously Zverev with the right. reach and consistency down the road and what he's able to do could certainly be a factor. But I don't see a lot, you know, honestly, looking at this the way the season's played out, yeah. Novak being a bit of a, an unknown, not in terms of his traditional level, but in terms of this season. I still, it's hard to go past uh, Djokovic and Alcaraz at this point. I'm curious to see the level because he hasn't played in a little bit, but Yannick Sinner, I think that's somebody that I think he's making strides and working with Darren Cahill has been great for him. I think he's got the game to challenge those guys. So he would be one that I want to consider. And then I, I did want to hear your thoughts on the rise, the ascent, and everything that comes with it with Holger Rune. Because there, mm. there is some, there's good, there's bad, but I think everybody's tuning in. And I think that's the best thing. This is a dynamic personality with some top-end game. And it's not all pretty, but it's always Yeah, there. I mean, it's, it's, it's more it's more what you think would be the norm, right? Sort of the learning curve issues for a young player, you know, in the spotlight is full of ambition and you can feel the ambition from Holger Rune when you watch him play, you watch him talk, everything. He's doing it fast. He wants to get there in a hurry. It's all like that. It, uh, yeah, you can see it and sense it. And there are going to be some gaffes. Probably going to be quite a few more before he's, he's he's through with all this because he's just, he wants it so much. Yeah. And dynamic personality, like it or don't like it, but above all, a dynamic game. Mm. You know, the guy, when you watch him, especially when you watch him live, just how explosive he is with the legs his movement around the court. I mean, uh, it's always hard to grasp in tennis until you watch it live, just how much court these guys are covering in a short period of time. And he is, he is a supreme mover. He really is. And, um, but I just think, obviously we've seen him. I think he'd probably agree. Choke, you know, have issues with, with management of, of emotions under match conditions. History would say over time you know, for young players, they iron those things out. I mean, people like Andy Roddick was jumping through the roof after every shot and celebrating like crazy. So was Rafa when he was younger. Yeah. Things kind of smooth out over time as you start to play more and more matches and you're, you, you find your baseline level of talent. But there's not anybody in the locker room or the coach's corner there who wouldn't put Holger as potential Grand Slam champion down the road with his tool set and his ambition. Right. I agree that he's got some rough edges to smooth out, but if this is the rough edges. He's number seven. So if he smooths them, if he smooths them out, we'll see. Uh, yeah, line, you got to have a yeah. little bit of a different types of personalities yeah. to deal with. I, you're going forward for the next generation, right? I mean, Carlos looks like he's positioning himself to kind of be the the gentleman, you know, yeah. smiling through adversity, you know, sort of enjoying the process. But I, I don't mind a little tormented, uh, driven soul <laughs> as well. It's good for uh, good for the audience, good for the spectators. Absolutely. Well, I want to wrap this up with talking about the 14-time French Open champion Rafael Nadal, who's not in Rome, will not be playing a lead up till Roland Garros for the first time in his career, you know, he's still, you know, a, a third favorite in the odds makers view behind Alcaraz and, and Djokovic based on reputation. Cause we haven't seen him play since Australia. What would your outlook be for Rafa? We know everything that he's done on this surface. It's probably the greatest record in the history of sports, but he's an aging athlete who has not played this clay court season. What's reasonable with this guy to expect? I think the problem is everybody's had to, uh, you know, bow to, uh, to Rafa's extraordinary abilities too many times. And then he's sort of beat the odds too many times with his preparation being not ideal coming into Roland Garros, still finding a way to win. So it's just, it's just hard until you see him fail in a logical situation to totally believe in logic. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the issue. Yeah. So, you know, someone like me, I have a lot of scar tissue with, you know, making the wrong predictions over the years about, you know, he's not ready this year. Things are not ideal and optimal. Other players are in position. Then he seems to find a way. Yeah. This would be the ultimate Houdini act if he were to pull this off. Um, yeah. I don't see it. So I'm going to 
I think I'm not alone there. It's just it's just hard to imagine not having had a lot of any clay court reps and also not having had a lot of success on other surfaces coming in before when he was playing quite a while back or at the end of 2022. So it's a little bit different scenario. I mean, there's there hasn't been the success anywhere really yeah. uh, for quite a while now for Nadal to come back and and pull off a, another title run at Roland Garros. So I don't think our expectations should be there. I think if he comes back and and plays Rafa like tennis again on clay, all good, amazing achievement in some ways based on the kind of physical challenges that he's facing. But um, would you want to play him in the first or second round or third round of Roland Garros? No, definitely not. No. So. <laughs> And something inside of us knows that he has this inner belief that he can channel. And you've seen it with champions in the past where they've sort of like Pete Sampras at the U.S. Open, you know, in 2002, not really having a lot of form, but finding the game he knew he had in him again as a great champion and running the table. Yeah. So and we, I think we sort of saw Rafa do that in Australia yeah. uh, a year and a half ago. So it, but I, I just don't think like, too many things stacked against him this time, I think. Well, I got that scar tissue with you because last year he was the third favorite. He lost a, a brutal match to Shapovalov, I believe it was, in Rome, and then he just went on and won the French Open. But he's no longer in the top ten. You mentioned the success he hasn't had and just no reps at all. I don't know. But I, we've been wrong so many times, so it's like you say, never say never. That's the one guy that I'll, I'll always give the benefit of the doubt to, but it's going to be tough. Uh, Chris Clary, this has been a blast. I'm always uh, appreciative of any time you give to the show coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. I look forward to following your coverage of the French Open. Safe travels uh, first to Boston, and then we're going to go to Europe and then, you know, see what we can uh, uncover at Roland Garros. But always a pleasure talking tennis with you. And uh, thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Thanks for having me, Mitch. And that's it for this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you to Barstool's Eric Hubs and thank you to Chris Cleary, both outstanding guests. Great to chat with them. The entire catalog of Tennis Channel Inside In is on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. You can go to tennis.com slash podcast. You can also go directly to the platforms themselves, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Stitcher, iHeart. We are everywhere podcasts are found. We're back next week, same time, same place for the tail end of the two-week Rome event. See who's in the final stages of that tournament. Will we get Djokovic and Alcaraz? Will we get Savalenka and Iga as a rematch from last week? Or will there be some upset specials that we'll have to be on our toes for? All that and more on Tennis Channel Inside In will be covered. Thanks again to both guests and thanks to everybody out there for listening. My name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In and we'll see you next week.